And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors podcast with me, your host, Barry Kirby. The medical domain is one of those that I used to naively assume that human factors would be front and center given that it's all about people um, and um, trying to make people better or uh, giving them better quality of life. But having been working with the likes of Dr. Mark Sujan in the AI and digital in healthcare special interest group through the CIHF, I've had a really rude awakening and I'm much more up to speed with just how much work there is to do. That is why when Nick Rome from the Human Factors cast introduced me to Tony Andrella this week, I was absolutely delighted because Tony's a fantastic background in healthcare human factors and is amongst a huge array of things, the founder of his own company. And he's here today to share some of his insights uh, with us. So hi, Tony, and welcome. And thank you very much for being here. Hey, Barry. Thank you. It's great to be here. Cool. Um, so we're going to use that sort of usual format. So we want to get to know about a bit about you. And then we want to get into the sort of human practice in healthcare and, and really what you've been doing in that field. So if we could start off with just could you tell us a bit about yourself? What, what's your current role? What is it you, you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, I do multiple things. I guess my primary role is running Interface Analysis Associates, which is a healthcare human factors consulting firm that I started in 1993. So we're almost at 30 years in business. Wow. When I'm not running my company, I'm a professor at San Jose State University in our graduate human factors and ergonomics program. I teach on average about two courses a semester. When I'm not doing those two jobs, uh, I do uh, some forensic human factors work as an expert witness uh, in various legal cases. And then when I'm not doing that, I like to volunteer my time to my professional society, uh, namely the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society. I run a conference for them on healthcare human factors. I'm a editor in chief of the new journal, Human Factors in Healthcare, and also serve on various uh, committees just to support the organization and to uh, ensure there's a next generation of human factors professionals. And presumably at some point you must sleep as well. That's an incredible amount of uh, stuff to take on. (laughs) Not too much, just a little bit, because I didn't mention my family, uh, (laughs) uh, which, you know, is equally important to me. but yeah, I keep busy. No, that, that, that's amazing. So you've had this, um, you know, running your own company and, and you put you put some effort in. So how did you get into human factors in the first place? What, what, what inspired the journey? Well, you know, my story has one commonality with a lot of people that it was by accident which <laughs> all the time in human yeah. factors. Uh, the quick version is I was a math and computer science major pre-personal computer at a time where both of those fields led to nowhere. (laughs) And I experienced my first year at the University of Illinois and uh, wasn't very happy. And I decided I would change majors to what I didn't know. But in the meantime, uh, starting my sophomore year, I figured I'd get a lot of general electives done that everyone has to take. And then I'd figure out my future, right? Because c- computers have no role in the society, right? No, no, <laughs> right? no, it's all just, just, yeah. just a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, 
so I went to the psych building because behavioral science is one of the disciplines you have to do, you know, a general reckon. And I was reading all these abstracts on a wall. And, and at that time, it was like maybe the top or second largest psych department in the country. So maybe 30 abstracts of different classes, you know, developmental, clinical, social, you know, all yeah. the normal variants that we know of uh, psychology. And then I read this one that talked about applying it to the design of products and systems uh, called sexist at the time, human factors and man machine systems. Right. Uh, keep in mind, this is 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I took that class and it's been my entire life ever since fall of 1984. Wow. That's, um, and that's going to be really good to sort because I had a sort of similar journey where I had one module on one of my engineering degree courses that, um, that sort of inspired me into, into that sort of, and it sounds a similar approach than you've just you've had that passion ever since. Yeah. And I just dove deep into it, switched my major, started working with professors. I did research as an undergrad. I stayed there to work with Chris Wickens for my PhD and I, it just took over my life in a, in a positive <laughs> way. Brilliant. So from that point of where you've, um, you've been inspired as an undergrad, what's been the, what's been the career path? What's been the journey? It's a fairly simple one. Um, NASA funded my dissertation and then hired me, uh, out of grad school. So I came out to California, Northern California to work as a principal scientist at the NASA Ames research center and aerospace human factors, you know, is my first love and was my primary focus in grad school. So I really enjoyed being at NASA and working on various aerospace projects and workload and attention and display design in the cockpit. Um, but I had, as much as I love aerospace, I just couldn't stop thinking of human factors applied to like everything in my life, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like probably the world's most annoying person to go to a shopping mall with. <laughs> just see it in every product and the signs in the doors I enter, you know. Yeah. And I just had this longing to apply it to more than one domain. Uh, so I started my company actually with a partner, Leon Siegel, a dear friend of mine. And uh, that was our, our goal was to have no boundaries on the types of products that we could apply human factors to. Cool. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, I took over the company as a sole proprietor and then, uh, after 15 years of maybe 10 years of doing anything and everything in terms of product domains, I then switched the focus to, to healthcare, which is now our, our primary focus. Cool. So yeah, that sounds like it's um, really deep what you've been doing and, and really ongoing. But I think we'll come back to um, what is it you do in a bit more detail, if, if that's okay. Um, and we'll do that yeah. straight after, we'll, we'll do that straight after this break. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And we talked to Tony Andre about the application of human factors in healthcare. And Tony, you've, you've already told us what, that you've um, you know been 
uh, running your own company for a substantial number of years now. Um, what exactly does your firm do in the healthcare space? Well, we do a variety of services to support kind of two different domains of uh, healthcare, at least two different domains as uh, implemented by the FDA. And so we follow kind of that same format. So uh, in one domain uh, called the drug delivery domain or the combination drug product domain, we help companies who pharma basically who make drugs that have to be delivered in devices. So, and anything but like a pill uh, usually comes in some delivery system, whether it's a syringe, an inhaler, a nasal spray, an auto injector, um, a pen, you name it. If, it. if it's delivered in a device, it's what's called a combination drug product. That is right. a drug combined with a device. So that's uh, one of our biggest domains. Uh, and then in the other domain, which is called medical devices, is anything that's not delivering a drug. And that domain's huge because the sky's the limit. You can be talking about a you know, robotic surgical system down to a simple surgical instrument. Uh, and as well, in more recent years, now software is considered a medical device. Okay. So you could be working on a software platform, you know, maybe something helping clinicians uh, look at imagery, you know, from different sources of, of a particular problem you're having. And uh, that imagery software, you know, falls under uh, regulatory control. So those are okay. the two worlds we live in every day. Yeah, yeah. So so why is work, I mean, you, you, you've got such a varied background, you start with NASA, et cetera. So why is working in healthcare so important to you? Um, well, I mean, first of all, you know, I, I got into it from a perspective of focusing my business just you know i did random projects in healthcare as i did aviation as i did consumer products as i did telephony mobile applications etc and every time i did a healthcare product i just really enjoyed it, it it's challenging uh it's so rewarding i mean think about getting paid to improve people's uh, lives and, and their health and wellness. It, it's like a great way to make a living. Hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's just so rewarding, but it also really, the other thing I love about it is my firm and, and my own being specializes in both, as you know, in the U S we kind of have this human factors and ergonomics, like mm -hmm. whatever reason we split, you know, neck up versus neck down. <laughs> and, uh, I never bought into that, meaning that uh, I practice both. I mean, if you're if you're dealing with a handheld product, then you're dealing with ergonomic issues, and of course, you're dealing with cognitive engineering issues. Yeah, yeah. And so, healthcare brings in both, right? If you're delivering something with an auto injector, you're handling something. There's its size, its shape, its girth, its balance, its grip, um, and then there's you know, can you figure out how to deploy it, its feedback system, et cetera. So it, it allows me to practice both sides of the field and and, uh, and the full discipline, uh, I might say. And I, I really enjoy that part of it. So, I mean, you do raise a really good point, actually, because the and certainly in the UK, I think we use human factors and ergonomics a lot more synonymously rather than whereas in the US, you do seem to have that quite a strong dividing 
Um, I think the neck is quite a strong dividing point about about the way we do definitions, um, which is, is is an interesting difference that that we see across the pond from each other. Yeah, um, very interesting. But uh, I'm yeah. So my European roots come through then uh, because <laughs> I, I I definitely see them as a merge, not as separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's at the, the, the really high level what you do. So on a day-to-day -day basis, what, what are the sort of common activities or services you do for your, for your clients? So we do a lot of expert reviews and heuristic evaluations because, you know, people present all sorts of products to us. I mean, the range is, is quite amazing. Uh, and but developed without human factors, right? Right. Okay. Such so as constantly, where it's software, hardware, some combination, a wearable, uh, you know, watch, um, a monitoring device for the ICU, something as complex as a dialysis machine, engineer-driven. You know. So our first activity and our most common is let us just look at it and think about. The interaction between this and your end users and tell you the human factors principles you missed out on yeah uh, we do a lot of instructional and training design so we develop instructions quick guides and training approaches for a lot of our clients and then we do a lot of testing because that's ultimately kind of the requirement of the fda mm -hmm. uh, what they call formative testing which is basically all of the informal testing you do to learn and iterate your user experience, and then the all important validation testing, sometimes called summative testing, which is like the final proof of the safety uh, and usability uh, of your product. And then along the way, I do a lot of regulatory advising as well. So, I mean, certainly in my, in my domain, I work quite a lot in the in the defense side of things, and it seems to be that um, so in my domain, there's a lot of, I guess, common mistakes that happen all the time. Um, you, you, we constantly sort of firefighting what, what we're doing um, quite a lot. Um, what, what, what's it like in healthcare? What, what are sort of the common mistakes that your clients make? I think ironically, the most common mistake my clients make and something I say a lot uh, is they forget that their users are sick, right? I mean, <laughs> okay. outside of healthcare, you're designing for humans, right? Yeah. But you can count on your your end user, let's say the pilot, to be relatively healthy and, and to have all of their faculties with them and their motivations intact. Uh, in healthcare, you're taking the average human, uh, you know, which is difficult sometimes to design for when healthy. And then you mm -hmm. have to add the factor that they're not well, they're not on their A game. Uh, so that makes it really challenging. And I, and I, I find that these companies in, who just live in this world, right? They yeah, only yeah. live in the world of providing drugs to people who are, who are sick or have chronic diseases or, you know, providing, creating medical devices to be used in the, the stressful context of surgery, et cetera, um, or developing something for people to use at home. They, they just forget the context. Right. Okay. Uh, so, they don't. They don't really realize the gravity of it. So, what do you? How do you then react to that? Then, how is it a case of you know going back to them and say, well, duh, um, you you know your subjects are real here, or do, do you have more subtle techniques, I guess, to uh, to help them get back in focus? Well, you know, it's a combination. I mean, sometimes that's the beauty of testing, and I've 
been operating uh, testing labs since uh, 1994. We have two that go pretty much full time. Sure. So sometimes the beauty of testing is just showing them, hey, here's your product meeting your end user. Have you ever seen this before? Because right. it's yeah. wild. And, you know, and that just makes their jaw drop. They just don't realize the disconnect, uh, the assumptions they made uh, right. about their end users. And other times it's just, um, you know, hardcore usability principles, just um, persuasive writing, mm -hmm. educational, um, you know, writing, just explaining why your product is missing key usability principles and what the impact that that will have. Yeah, yeah. So obviously it's easy to focus on the negative stuff, but there must be um, some I don't know, interesting or re, you know, really rewarding projects that you've been involved with. Can you give us a, a flavor of, I guess, the breadth of stuff you've been playing with? Um, sure, we do. I mean, everything's pretty rewarding. I think some of the key projects that stick in my head, the first is inhaled insulin. A product right. called Afreza, which is on the market right now. Uh, some diabetics uh, take, because they take both long acting and what we call mealtime insulin, they take four to five injections a day. Mm. So times seven, right? That's, you know, 28 to 35 injections a week yeah. for the rest of your life. That's a lot of injections. And imagine just doing an inhaler instead and never, never injecting. Wow. Uh, so that's really cool. Um, defibrillators, uh, the ones you see in the airport, shopping malls, uh, public defibrillators. We've done a lot of work in that space. Interesting mm -hmm. story. We did a comparison of the top four in 2003, a very popular article we published. And one of the lowest performing companies called me kind of angry right after it. Asked <laughs> my I'm like, keep asking, don't worry. We have the data, we have the video. Trust me, yeah. you can't last. Um, <laughs> and they hung up the phone. I don't know, maybe they threatened a lawsuit, but nothing happened. Five years later, they called and they said, okay, we're over your study. We now want you to find <laughs> our defibrillator. Right. And that became an award-winning best-in-class device. Wow. And uh, so that was a really cool project and very challenging because our interface was all, well, 95% of it was verbal. Yeah, yeah. Right? Defibrillators guide you through voice commands, not through yeah. displays. Uh, so th that was really rewarding. And then my company does a lot of work on uh, safety syringes and auto injectors and some unique products that kind of take you know, what's a scary thing to many people mm. uh, and make it more more friendly and approachable. So what's uh, uh, just for the, like I said, I don't work in the uh, in, in the medical field and thankfully touch wood, I don't spend that much time in hospital. What's a, what's a safety syringe? Just So uh, a safety syringe, uh, there's different variants, but it's one in which when you're done injecting, it more or less automatically covers the needle. Right. Okay. Yeah. And okay. there's many auto injectors in which you'll never see the needle. And then I worked on a product uh, really aimed at children in which the injector, the it's a syringe, but you don't know it. It almost looks like a light bulb. Right. And okay. you press it to your body. You never see a needle and you just push it down until this band of color disappears. 
and then take it off. And you wouldn't even know it, but you just injected yourself. Wow. Okay. That's so impressive. That was a really cool product. So I love doing projects where you're making healthcare more approachable. Yeah. And uh, you're removing, you know, like psychological barriers to it. Not so. Yeah, that idea around because um, you know um, stabbing yourself with with a needle is a, is is scary and um, intimidating and all that sort of stuff. Um, the healthcare domain seems to be evolving um, quite rapidly, not only in you know the physical stuff, but actually the the way that people are approaching it, um, taking much more account into you know the, the psychology of what's going on and things like that. Where's it going next? What what, the, what what's the emerging trends as you see them? Well, I think the single biggest emerging trend is kind of the merge of healthcare and the internet of things. Right. So yeah. just like our cars and other products in our lives, it's, it's adding sensor technology that um, tells you information on a smartphone app, transmits that information to your doctor, reminds you what doses you took. Um, try, you know, I worked on a product in which you, you take your oral medication and there's one tiny grain of uh, metal in your pills that then talk to a patch you wear on your body that then communicates to an app that you took your pills or not, and then That's send cool. that information to your doctor. So yeah, yeah. you go meet with your doctor um, and the doctor says, listen, you're always taking this one drug too late or you're not taking your right dose. You know, That's maybe why you're not feeling as good as you could. Yeah. Um, now, the interesting thing about this, this movement of connected devices and what we call telemetry um, is it does also then get into another issue of, you know, they sometimes call, you know, big brother uh, mm -hmm. of, you know, do you want, you know, what if then the insurance company knows you don't take your drug on time? Do you get denied your benefits? And, you know, do we want to share everything? Uh, and I find the, the issue fascinating. Uh, as well, you know, when you add that component to it. I'd say the whole, yeah, the, the whole ethics behind this, it's some work we've been doing here as well. That's sort of looking at like the, the ethics of, of using artificial intelligence and, and things like that. And what happens if people don't want that sort of activity as well? It's, um, I still think there's a long way to go in before, you know, as, as a lot of the technology evolves, we're going to have to keep on top of this um, really quite stringently. Yeah, technology and ethics go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately so it just you have to keep on top of both and constantly you know see where you are uh with respect to you know both issues yeah yeah so you clearly with your, your with your business it's it's um you're getting into some fascinating projects and, and dealing with some great things what what's really what what's the success behind it how have you managed to keep it growing i mean because not every not every company gets to do that so uh, what's what's bit what's the sort of secret behind your success? I attribute my personal success to not growing my company, which I know is a strange, <laughs> strange <laughs> thing to say. Um, but I learned a lesson from a colleague uh, many years ago, and um, I made a decision when my company could have grown because of the demand. And a lot of my colleagues or competitors' companies did grow. Uh, that I would stay a certain size so that I was always involved in every project, meaningfully right. involved. In other words, I just 
never wanted to become a bait and switch company owner. Yeah. And, you know, I don't begrudge any company that grows, right? (laughs) It's like the purpose of a company. So my competitors, you know, it's fine. They're the more normal uh, versus me, right? (laughs) Uh, Healthcare is blown up. Um, They were eight, 10, 12 person companies like mine. They're now 50, 60, 100, you know, good for them. But ultimately, that means that, you know, the person, the company owner, you know, pitching you the services is never working on your project. And younger and younger and less professionally mature people have to take key roles. And healthcare is just, there are no, you know, there are no projects that aren't important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every client, this is critical. This is them getting on the market. There's no casual projects in healthcare human factors. And so I just made a decision that I would just stay a certain size. And because I love doing the work, I would Mm -hmm. be a part of every project. And some of my clients are just shocked. They're always like, so who is going to be our contact now that we're, you know, under contract? I'm like, it's still me (laughs) talking to me every day. You'll be seeing me run your studies. You'll yeah. Um, I have a great staff and they keep busy and they do great work, but I'm a part of every project. And I think that personal attention has been the key to my success. So I've got an awful lot of sympathy with that because I'm very much in the, in the, uh, in the same position. I sort of always had the, had a magic number in my head at the, where I don't really want to grow above, um, which for me has been, has been 11, uh, but it fits with a lot of agile talk, you know, communication channels, science and all that sort of stuff. But it, it just seems, a, a, for me, a sweet spot number. Have you always had a, a sweet spot number in, in mind or is it just been yeah. a, about this or? No, mine's similar. Like I've always stayed under 15. Okay. So I'm I'm like at that, I'm at maybe 12 right now. So yeah, yeah. I think 15 has always been the number where above that, then I just can't manage it all and be a part of it all. Oh, please, it's not just me. It's, it's great to great to meet a, a fellow person who doesn't want to just blow the company up. Um, but in terms of your business success, though, you've um, I believe you've actually just merged with another company. Can you get, give us a bit more um, insight into that and, and why I did, you did it? I did. Uh, well, I merged with a great company called Confluent Health. And they have a subsidiary called Fit for Work, which is really kind of my managing partner. Um, And I did that. That brings um, some more resources to my company and some additional marketing and really just some additional great people who can just think creatively of how to really push the envelope of healthcare human factors. So I felt that... I needed that kind of strategic, creative assistance, and I'm getting it from Confluent Health. And and it just also just stabilizes, you know, again, I'm a small company and just will stabilize uh, my company and, and allow some growth, but not, not a growth that violates my principle of being involved in everything, more from a resource and facility and marketing perspective. That's a, that sounds um, a, a really neat neat fit. The you obviously just your day job in in the healthcare space is huge, but you also touched on right at the beginning that you also do a lot of other stuff 
um, in the healthcare space, you know, with the um, HFES and, and, and things like that. Can you tell us a bit more about um, what you do, what you do for HFES and in, in the healthcare space? Yeah, I think my main two responsibilities are first, I started a conference called the International Symposium on Human Factors and Ergonomics in Healthcare uh, 11 years ago. And it's now grown to like the main event uh, in this domain. In fact, our conference is uh, next month in New Orleans. We're back in person and we'll also be virtual later in the year. And it's grown to just an amazing event split into different domains. There's digital health, there's medical devices, there's hospital environments, there's simulation and training, patient safety, et cetera. Uh, so that's a big event that I still co-manage. And then this year we started a new journal with Elsevier, uh, Human Factors in Healthcare. And uh, it's a unique journal because it has both a traditional research side to it, but also has, and this is the side I manage, an applied side where actual yeah. practitioners can now publish. It doesn't have to be even a, a study. They can publish thought pieces, uh, best practices, interesting methods and tools, debates, etc. So I'm really excited about that and, and getting that off the ground and bringing a platform to the applied uh, practitioner community. That sounds fantastic. I know quite a few um, bits around where I have frustration that we don't bring enough of the applied side. So the bits that where people are do, you know, practitioners on day-to-day -day basis, um, we, we don't give enough platform or enough space just to share that knowledge. Um, but going back to the um, the conference that's coming up in, in New Orleans, is that still accessible, still available? Can people still sign up for it? They can, if they go to HCS Healthcare Symposium, uh, hcs2022.org is the website for the conference. And yeah, you can still register, <clears throat> you can still attend. Uh, New Orleans is always a blast. That's like one of my favorite cities in the world. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be a great event. And then we'll be announcing, uh, I think sometime in March when our virtual event will take place later in the in the year, most likely in early summer. Brilliant, that, that, sound, that sounds an awful lot of fun. The, before we um, start recording, you were also telling me about a new pro, pro bono initiative you were, you're, you're kicking off. So tell me more about that. What, what's it about? I am really excited to announce that next month. Well, we're starting off by offering pro bono services to anyone working in the ALS space. You know, that's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to facilitate FDA approval of new drugs uh, in that space and also just facilitate companies making products and using modern technology to help people who suffer from the disease. So, and that sounds an absolutely fantastic thing to be doing, um, but it does beg the question, um, what, why are you giving it away for free? What, what, what's it? <laughs> Sorry, Barry, you want to repeat that? Yeah, I said, so uh, it sounds like an absolutely fantastic thing that you're doing, but why are you giving it away for free? What's, what's your motivation behind it? Well, my personal motivation is my oldest brother has ALS. Um, right. He got diagnosed a few years ago, and thankfully, he's fighting it like a tiger and not slowing down and, and so far beating it. 
Um, so, you know, when I thought about doing this and what topic I would pick first, that, that was an easy one because mm -hmm. really there have not been enough resources devoted to this disease. And for 95% of the people, it, it's a death sentence. It's just yeah. how long, uh, you know, until. And uh, so I really want to help new drugs come to the market and new products because uh, when you have this disease, you know, what's happening is your brain and your muscles are no longer communicating. So your body kind of dies off a muscle group at a time. Right. Uh, and ultimately when it reaches, you know, your respiratory system, that's kind of when you're in trouble. And so, you know, there's developing drugs to prevent it. There's drugs to treat it. And then there's how can you give people back their muscle function? You know, maybe it's through exoskeletons or other technologies um, that we, you know, now have and 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 utilize to, but haven't really focused on this domain and this group of patients. So I want to uh, enable that, and we're going to offer our services free to at least, you know, initially evaluate and give human factors inputs to uh, anyone making a product that would be used by ALS patients. That's how, that's um, I get an, an incredible gesture, but obviously um, with the reasoning behind why you're doing it, you can see why you're so passionate about it. If companies want to get in touch with you to take advantage of that offer, then uh, the, how, how do they get in touch with you? They could just email me. I have a simple email address for that, 800usability at gmail.com, 800usability at gmail.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, they can also go to my website, interface-analysis.com. So I'm easy to find on the web. <laughs> That's brilliant. Are you, and, uh, are you the only person doing this in, in this field? What's the, um, or is, there, is it stiff competition or? Um... I mean, it's just, I, yeah, it's just something I want to do right now with my company and where I'm at and initially on behalf of my brother, mm -hmm. but I do have this dream uh, and I think it'll happen uh, because all my competitors in the healthcare human factors field are my friends and they're a great group of people and we actually talk often. Yeah. and support each other and so i i do have this dream after i launched this first campaign of getting the entire healthcare human factors community to uh together and separately do a certain amount of of pro bono work each year and the reason is that you know the way i i operate my business now is just I call it, I just answer the phone, right? In other words, I don't dictate the projects. Just clients randomly find me and then have been randomly working on whatever they work on. And I think it's time for the industry, meaning not, not the manufacturers, but the human factors, healthcare industry to say, what should we affect in the world? Instead of letting people randomly, you know, invent things, randomly decide uh you know what drugs they want to work on or conditions they want to um, help why don't we decide on a condition or a situation that could use our expertise and apply it to it together mm -hmm. 
it's kind of like top down and bottom up happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes a uh, an awful lot of sense. And we'll make sure that your uh, contact details are in the show notes of of, uh, of this podcast as well. Great. Um, as we round off the interview, we um, ask the same final three questions to everybody we interview. So. What is your go-to book or paper or you know reference? And this can be technical or it could be fiction. If some people like a, a good fiction book just to keep the keep their keep the sanity. But what book, what thing do you keep on going back to? Uh I kind of have two. I mean, honestly, I teach with it. I was taught by it, but the Wiccans et al. Engineering psychology and human performance uh, yeah. textbook is still my go-to because it just covers so many topics, mm -hmm. and it's so chock full of references that I often have to go to that. Um, I also love the book Enumeracy by I think his name was John Paulos. Okay, um, I, I'm a really big statistics nut, and always loved you know how to lie with statistics. And love right. reading about how statistics is abused in society. <laughs> yes. So he's written several books on that topic, but his first one was called Enumeracy. Right. Cool. Um, if you could, what, and you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, I mean, I hesitate to answer that because I'm a big Back to the Future fan. And, <laughs> okay. you know, I like where I've landed. So I would be afraid that if I changed anything, even something that was non-optimal about my yeah. path, it could alter my future. Right. So right. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful about that. Uh, but probably be to get more sleep. Uh, you know, uh, I probably could use that advice now too, but <laughs> I, uh, I definitely, in fact, I made a comment on someone's post about all nighters. Yeah. Uh, yeah and the effects of that. And I, I told them I could have been a good uh, study subject in, in undergrad. You mentioned about Back to the Future. I, I believe you own a DeLorean, is that right? I do, I have, um, you know, DeLoreans were only made for three years. Yeah. They only made, I think, 8,000 cars, but I have a very early 1981 DeLorean that runs perfectly. We drive it every week. So, wow, you, you must get a fair bit of attention with that. Yeah, we do. My son mainly drives it. He gets a lot of attention, <laughs> but he just loves the way it drives. And uh, it's a surprisingly good car and ours looks brand new. That's amazing. That, I'm, I'm really jealous. Um, so the final one then, who would you, because this is where I get really lazy about finding out, finding who to interview next, who would you suggest I interview next on the podcast? Well, if you haven't, probably Peter Hancock. Uh, what do you know, think? Because uh, Peter is career, you know, for two reasons. His career has been amazing. Um, you know, probably the most productive, modern human factors psychologist that exists. Uh, but also because of Peter's other interests. Um, he, he's written books on topics um, outside of human factors. Uh, he's a cartography geek. Um, he's just... He just has such a broad view of life mm -hmm. and has mastered so many disciplines that he would just be a fascinating guest if you haven't interviewed him yet. 
No, he, we haven't had him yet, so I'll try, try and do what I can to get him on the list. I'll make thank it you. happen for you. That, 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 I would greatly appreciate that. So thank you, Tony. And I really appreciate um, all the information you've given us today about um, human factors in the healthcare and also the candid way um, you've, you've taught us about the pro bono work you're doing and the motivations behind it. If people want to know more, I know you mentioned before, but if you want to um, just blast out again what your uh, contact details are, um, just in case people want to get in touch with you straight away, how can they get in touch with you? The easiest way is to email me at 800usability at gmail.com. That's 800-U-S-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y at gmail.com. Or just find me on LinkedIn. That's perfect. Thank you. So as a just a, re a reminder for everybody, we're going to be at the Ergonomics and Human Practice Conference in Birmingham on the 25th and 26th of April, live, in person. And hopefully we're going to be getting to sit down to interview some of the speakers as well as good reactions from uh, from participants and, um, and, and attendees. And hopefully we're going to have some sort of studio set up, um, depending on how much I can convince um, Amanda, my wife, to let me buy. Um, so if we do get the studio up and running, do drop by, say hi, and um, let us know what you think of the conference. And if I also get myself sorted out, we'll also be doing some mobile interviews in maybe the bar on a on, on a late basis because I missed the bars at the um, at conferences where most of the work actually gets done. If you're not actually going, then do keep an eye on the social links and we'll be pushing out the content as we get it. But for now, thank you for your time. Um, and thank you for your time, uh, Tony. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human, the Human Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See you time. Next and remember, it's more than just common sense.